0: open your Bibles with me to the book of Genesis chapter 29, Genesis 29 and verse 13. I'm going to read a little bit here. I'm going to read a little bit more than normal to start out, but I want to make sure we get this story laid out as we begin. Genesis 29, starting in verse 13. Don't forget Bree. Starting in verse 13. It says, when Laban heard the news about his sister's son, Jacob, he ran to meet him, hugged him and kissed him, then took him to his house. And Jacob, Jacob told him all that had happened. Laban said to him, yes, you are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him a month, Laban said to him, just because you're my relative, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The older was named Leah and the younger was named Rachel. Leah had tender eyes, but Rachel was shapely and beautiful. Jacob loved Rachel, so he answered Laban, I will work for you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban replied, better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay with me. So Jacob worked seven years for Rachel and they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, since my time is complete, give me my wife so I can sleep with her. So Laban invited all the men of the place and sponsored a feast. That evening, Laban took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob and he slept with her. And Laban gave his slave Zilpah to his daughter Leah as her slave. When morning came, there was Leah. So he, Jacob, said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Wasn't it for Rachel that I worked for you? Why have you deceived me? And Laban answered, it is not the custom in this place to give the younger daughter in marriage before the firstborn. Complete this week of wedding celebration and we will also give you this younger one in return for working yet another seven years for me. And Jacob did just that. He finished the week of celebration and Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, as his wife, And Laban gave his slave, Billah to his daughter, Rachel, as her slave. Jacob slept with Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was unable to conceive. Leah conceived, gave birth to a son, and named him Reuben, for she said, The Lord has seen my affliction. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, gave birth to a son and said, the Lord heard that I am unloved and he has given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. She conceived again, gave birth to a son and said, at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne three sons for him. Therefore, he was named Levi. After she conceived again, gave birth to a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she named him Judah. Then Leah stopped having children. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for these men and women. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's truth that we can hold in our lap. I thank you for what you have to teach us today about you, about us, and about all the interactions that can happen in between. I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're able to take and translate to each heart as we have need And I thank you, Lord, that the truth, as Christ said, will set us free in Jesus name. Amen. So as we continue to talk about the soul, I won't go through the whole intro because I think you've heard it before. Uh, But our soul is needy, right? That's one of the things we've established. That's one of the things we were discussing this morning, starting at 930. Our soul is needy. Our soul is looking for comfort. Uh, Back in the summer in the month of June, I was uh, reading uh, a book by uh, Tim Keller called Counterfeit Gods. It was talking about idolatry. And it had been a blessing to me reading that. And I picked up my Bible then and began reading it and turned in my regular reading to Psalm 77. And I've shared with you about Asaph and about how he was crying out to God for comfort. And then he also said in the same breath, almost my soul refuses to be comforted or my soul refused to be comforted. And the Lord just paired those things up. And I knew at that point that I wanted to share uh, with you out of what I was learning, both out of the scripture and out of the categories uh, that were so helpful that uh, Pastor Keller had written about. Uh, Because we do seek to comfort our souls through the wrong channels and the wrong things. We can seek lesser things to make ourselves try to feel happy, satisfied, and validated. And scripture would call that idolatry. And, it, and like I said last week, when we think of idolatry or idol worship, we think of you know, a tribe of people living in the jungle, going into a hut and bowing down in front of a gold statue and making some kind of chant. And while that would be worshiping a false god, it's a little bit different for us In the things that our soul will chase after and look to instead of God Almighty. When we are idolizing something, we're taking usually something that's good and asking it to be for us something great. Again, starting out something good and asking it to be something great, and that's where the quote came from that. Uh, disordered love is the essence or the beginning of sin, getting our loves out of order, taking good things and asking them to be great for us. And last week we read about Abraham and how all he ever wanted was a son, a family. Now God had blessed Abraham and said, I want you to go out from the land that you're in, go out from your family to the land that I'll show you. And I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you. And I will curse those that curse you and all the peoples of the world will be blessed through you. And we know from reading the whole way through that it was a reference to the Messiah who would come from that line of Abraham to save the whole world. But Abraham with that promise in hand, looked back at God and said, what good is it if you give me all that when I don't have a son to leave it to? What good is it if I don't have a family? What am I without that? He's like, that's all I ever wanted. And God said, I will give you A son, your servant won't be the inheritor of your household, but one that will come from your own body. That's a promise from me. And we know that God did his wife, Abraham's wife, Sarah, who had been barren, gave birth to Isaac. Right. The promised son. And we went through and saw how there was even a testing of Abraham to say, who is supreme? Who do you fear most in life? Is it God almighty or is it this gifted son that you spent your whole life longing after? And so we fast forward some years. Isaac has grown up. Isaac has grown up. And after his mother's death, God brought him a wife named Rebecca. And he and his wife, Rebecca, together had twins. She became pregnant. And while she was pregnant, there was a prophecy spoken over those two babies that said the younger will rule over the older or the older will serve the younger. And she had two boys and named them Esau. He was the oldest, the first one born. And the second one was Jacob. And again, the prophecy there was that the older would serve the younger. Isaac, the dad, preferred the older one, Esau. And the mom, Rebecca, preferred the younger one, Jacob. And one day when Isaac was old, so this is many years later, and again, I want to go through and teach all this every verse, every step, but it would take so long. We may get there one day. We may go all the way through the book of Genesis. That'd probably take us about five years, but the Lord would bless, I think. Um, But so you're going to think, if you know the story, you're skipping over a lot, and it's just for time's sake. But one day when Isaac was older, Uh, His eyes had begun to grow dim. He couldn't see like he used to see. He wanted to give the deathbed blessing to his eldest son, Esau. But Jacob, the younger, conspired with his mother to deceive his father to take Esau's blessing. And we could read. Well, let's look at it. Let's see chapter 27. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. It's just a couple of verses because I wanted to read the blessing, the the blessing that uh, he stole from his brother. Isaac said over his son that he thought was Esau was actually Jacob. He said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord is blessed. May God give to you from the dew of the sky and from the richness of the land an abundance of grain and new wine. May people serve you and nations bow and worship to you. Be master over your relatives. May your mother's sons bow and worship to you. Those who curse you will be cursed and those who bless you will be blessed. And so it was his version of the same blessing that God has spoken over his daddy Abraham, right? And Jacob stole that from his brother Esau by deceiving his father Isaac, and Esau was enraged. He became very, very angry, even murderous. Jacob's mother, Rebekah, said, Your brother Esau is comforting himself by thinking about killing you. He's comforting himself by by thoughts of killing you. You've got to run. You've got to get out of here. You can't be here anymore. He's going to kill you. And so Jacob, Abraham's grandson, Isaac's youngest boy, is exiled from his people. He goes out on his own, no family, no possessions. The next time we see him, he's sleeping on open ground, exposed with a rock for his pillow. Okay? Okay. That's the next time that we see him and he's going to be dealing with loneliness because he's by himself. He's never been by himself. Guilt, lack. He's got nothing. Regret that I do the wrong thing. He's empty and in need of comfort. And there in that field with his head on a rock, he has an encounter with God. And that's in chapter 28. And again, I'll read just a couple verses there, starting in verse 11. He reached a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. He took one of the stones from the place, put it there at his head and lay down in that place. And he dreamed a stairway was set on the ground with his top reaching the sky and God's angels were going up and down on it. The Lord was standing there beside him, saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your offspring the land on which you are lying. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out toward the west, the east, the north and the south. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Look, I am with you. And it will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. It sounds real good, doesn't it? It's him, God is confirming the covenant promise made to Abraham down through Isaac, now to Jacob. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And so he's begun this incredible relationship with God. He has this blessing of God laid upon his life. He didn't do anything. He's been messing up and yet he's still got a blessing of God spoken over him. But what we'll see is even though he's begun this relationship with God, he is still in himself wrestling with an inner emptiness. He is still looking for comfort and when we're talking about looking for comfort looking to idolatry or the wrong thing for comfort even though God is at work Jacob is giving himself away to a different hope and for him and what our topic is going to be this week is in the realm of idolatry is romantic love or the hope of the one true love the one true love that's what it was for him that, that his thought of this person is out there, this perfect person, this perfect match for me. The one that will complete me, the one that will make me right. So Jacob, just like his grandfather, Abraham, I have God, but I want this. I have God, but I still lack this thing. For Abraham, it was a son. For Jacob, it was romantic love, to have that thing that he deemed as precious. Remember, an idol, a good thing, made ultimate. Is love a good thing? Yes. Is a loving relationship a good thing? Absolutely. Is it going to be enough to be God in your life? Let's look at it today. Jacob arrives in the land of his mother's family, and he meets his uncle's daughter, his cousin, You're like the Arkansas. No, but it wasn't uncommon. Right. He meets his cousin, Rachel. And in chapter twenty nine, verse ten, it says, as Jacob, as soon as Jacob saw his uncle Laban's daughter, Rachel, with uncle Laban's sheep, he went up and rolled the stone from the opening to the well and watered his uncle Laban's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept loudly. My man has been overwhelmed with love and attraction for this woman. This is his first uh, interaction when he gets to the land of his uncle, which is where he was trying to go. It's the only other place he thinks it'll take him in. And Uncle Laban, as we read earlier, takes Jacob into his house and he begins working for him. Everybody has to contribute, right? And Uncle Laban said, after a month, uh, you know, we're, we're kin, but I shouldn't take advantage of you. I should pay you something for the work that you're doing for me. What should your salary be? And we see how Jacob is dealing with this inner emptiness, this turmoil, all those feelings he was feeling, laying out in the open, all the regret, the guilt, the what am I going to do? the lack. We see how he's processing it and how he responds to his uncle Laban. he says, "I'll work seven years for you to marry Rachel." And here in the text we notice a few things, I want to point out a few things. It said in verse 17, Rachel was shapely and beautiful. So in all definitions that the world could put on someone, she was beautiful. She was attractive and she was attractive to him. But he says, I'll work seven years to marry her. Now, what you need to know here is that my man isn't negotiating at all. He's throwing out a time frame that is a lot larger than any bride price of the time. Normally, it was going to be about 30 to 40 shekels for a bride price. And normal labor was about a, a shekel and a half a month. So he's offering three to four times more than is usual. And again, not even not even negotiating. Right. So you can see how taken up he is with her, how, how far outside of normal thought he is. We see it there and then we see it in another spot. So we're going to jump ahead and then I'll, I'll, I'll step back. After the seven years had passed. After the seven years had passed, which it said it went by to him really quick. Why? Because he's got this hung out here in front of him. At the end of this, I get to be with Rachel. So it says it went by to him quickly. And then Jacob said to Laban, since my time is complete, give me my wife so I can sleep with her. And translators and commentators have had trouble with that line for a long time because of how crass it is. He's basically saying to this man, give me your daughter so that I can have sex with her. Right. Very vulgar, very not like this. This don't sound like love anymore. This sounds like really aggressive. Right. And so these two things mixed together, the fact that he went way over beyond what was even customary for the bride price and the way he's talking. You can see that his head is not where it should be. We believe that the narrator, as it's being written, what we're supposed to see is that this is a man overwhelmed with emotional and sexual longing. Why? Because that is what he has put out there as his hope. This is what's going to fix me. This is what's going to set me to right. This is what's going to finally clear me up. This is what's going to fix and fill me. And, and oddly enough, he was uh, it, this wasn't normal during that time to look at the marriage relationship in that way. It was much more of a social setup. It was much more of a family continuation. It wasn't what we put on it today. So Jacob was an innovator. I guess is what I'm saying. And one of the things uh, that, that I came across, it was actually in reading Keller. He pointed to uh, a writer named Ernest. Becker talking about how we deal with things today, how our mind processes things today. Ernest Becker wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning book called The Denial of Death. And what you need to know about him is he's an atheist, so I'm not recommending you go read his book. But he had a perspective on how in his mind he's like, "Okay, I have given up belief in God. I'm a secular person now. Here's how I'm processing that. And here's how other secular people are processing that. And when writing about how people dealt with that loss of belief in God, he said the problem that people have when you say there is no God is you still want a transcendent experience. You still want to have meaning in your life. You still want to know that your life isn't void and invalid. You still want to feel great Love. And so to do that, to to have that redemption that you still want in life, even though you say there is no God, atheist, even though you say there is no God, secularist, you still want meaning and validity to your life. He said, so most people come up with what he called the romantic option. He said, when you don't have a God in the right place in your life, you're going to elevate something to that position. Something so that you feel like your life matters, so that you feel like you're experiencing great love. He said, we want to feel like our existence isn't in vain. We want something that will rid us of our faults, rid us of our emptiness and essentially redeem us. And again, atheists writing this about how people in our culture handle the romantic option. He's like, they elevate it to the point where if it's not a God, it will fail. You can't elevate a romantic relationship to that level without it failing. He was pointing out that this is something that people will do when they don't look to God in their life. And we see it in culture. Culture will tell you that a a sex drive is just an appetite, right? Right. It's just an appetite. It's just a desire. If you would just satisfy it, then it would be fine. Right. That's all you need to do. And yet what we see is there's more and more and more of it in culture than there's ever been. And things are getting worse. Things are getting so much worse. So you can't believe the lie of, well, what you just need is more of it. What you need is to have. Well, now you need to have more of it. Well, now you need to have and and It's just getting more and more depraved. Why? Because people have set it up and said, this is the thing. And if I get to the end of the rainbow, then there I will be blank. You fill in the blank. They've elevated this romantic love option to the ultimate point. And they would tell you that Christianity or anything with morality is suppressing that and is to be done away with. What's wrong is that you're starving for it. And so it's causing you issues when, in fact, what you're really starving for is meaning. Meaning. That's what we're really starving for. Communion with the divine. What we're starving for is to matter. We want to know in our soul, that we matter. And we, people, culture, have set this up as this is how I'll know I matter. And again, look around. How's it working out for us? How's it going for us? It's love disordered. It sings out of whack. It's taking something that is meant to be good and right and making it ultimate, which makes it a slave master. And that's where we find Jacob. He is lost in his longing. He's out of his head. Again, just look how he's speaking. It's this inner emptiness. I'm a failure. I'm alone. I don't even get to be around my mom, my dad, my brother. I don't get to be around all the people I grew up with. There's an emptiness. And in his mind, love, this love, this the one will fix it. This one will fix it. And he hung all his hope on it. And look what happens. Uh, this is such an interesting story. So he, he comes to Laban and then he's working for him and he says, what should your salary be? He's like, I worked seven years to marry Rachel, your younger daughter. And then look what Laban says. What Laban doesn't say is yes. He doesn't say yes. He says, better that I give her to you than some other man stay with me. That's not a Yes. That's just some random kind of comment. But what did Jacob want to hear? He wanted to hear yes. He wanted to hear yes. So that is what he heard. I love the beginning of this story. When Laban heard the news about Jacob, he runs out to meet him. He takes him into his house. Jacob told him about everything that had happened, including what I deceived my dad. And Laban said, yes, you are my own flesh and blood. You're a trickster too, man. And so you see Laban taking advantage of Jacob and Jacob being a prime candidate to be in taken advantage of why because he is chasing after that idol. He wanted to hear yes and so that's what he heard. And then comes the wedding. He's expecting Rachel And he gets a bride who again, heavily veiled. So her face is covered. The whole ceremony. It's a big thing. People all around. Look, there's going to be some inebriation. Uh, there's going to be some intoxicants there because they're celebrating. And then he goes into the marriage bed with his veiled bride. And in his heart, he's saying, Rachel. And he wakes up the next morning in the light of the day. And it's Leah. It's Leah. And he becomes enraged and he goes to his uncle and says, what is this you have done to me? Wasn't it for Rachel that I worked for you? Why have you deceived me? And Laban says, look, round here. That's what he says. In these parts, it's not customary for what? The younger to exceed the older. Well, that's a cutting remark, isn't it? That's not just, hey, this is our policy. That's round here, buddy. The younger takes his lessons. Why? Because what did he do? The younger usurping the older. And then he's also hearing the exact same words. Wait a second. He deceived me with somebody in the dark. I deceived my father in the dark. He can't see me. I took something that wasn't mine. He, he changed it around on me. My father thought it was Esau and it was really me. I thought it was Rachel and it was really Leah. And then the, sw- he just, what have I, I mean, he's hoisted by his own petard as one man said, right? This has come about the exact same way that I brought it about on others. And so it would have cut because, again, he deceived his father in the dark. He deceived Esau. And so Laban says, you can work seven more years and you can marry Rachel next week in exchange for seven more years. So 14 years for a bride price that should have been about two to three years at the most. Right. So you see the cost of idolatry. You see how much we'll overpay for something. And not just overpay in money, but in time, attention, the value of our life. How much we'll overpay for something when we've hung it up there as our ultimate hope. When we have hung it up there as our ultimate and eternal hope, the cost of it is always excessive. And it's not just taking a toll on Jacob. There's somebody else involved in this now. And her name's Leah. Leah is wrapped up in this now, too. In the idolatry of romantic love, there is always collateral damage. Somebody's always getting hurt. And she got swept up in this, too. Look at what we, we, we read about Leah. It doesn't say a lot about her. Verse 17 It said Leah had tender eyes. That's another one people have had trouble translating as like, what does this mean? She was weak eyed or, you know, and and people have gone all kinds of different directions with it. Like, well, does that mean she wasn't nice to look at? Does that mean she was cross eyed? Does that mean she couldn't see very good? But but you look at what what the, the contrast in verse 17, it said Leah had tender eyes, but Rachel was shapely and beautiful. So it doesn't say. Leah had tender eyes, but Rachel could see real good. She had that 2020. (laughs) Right. Doesn't say that. And so I think we're meant to take away from this. Leah was unattractive and Rachel was attractive or Leah was more unattractive than Rachel was attractive. And so we have this. you, You have to understand this is her younger sister. And here she's growing up with her. And I'm sure that was a lot of image issues involved in that for her. Right. Because Rachel. Now, Rachel, we're not going to read much more about her. No, she's not perfect. OK, we'll fight. You'll find that out as you read on in the story. She had her own issues that she had to work out. But Leah, the older sister of Rachel, more than likely lived in the shadow of her sister. And who would marry her? Who's courting her? Who's coming and asking her father for Her, so far, nobody, right? Because he had to trick Jacob into marrying her. She, in this situation, has been treated terribly. Terribly taken advantage of. Not valued. And that's on her wedding day. This is her wedding day. This is supposed to be a happy day. And the next morning, her husband, Jacob, is pitching a fit because now he's married to her. So imagine we talked about him and how he felt laying out in that open field and all of his feelings when there's nobody there but him. How is she feeling when he leaves out of that room to go yell at her daddy? How is she feeling? It's tragic and it's a little bit ironic because she's almost a good uh, soulmate there for Jacob because they both turn to other things to try to help that go away. She's also trying to deal with that emptiness that she feels. And how is she doing that? How is she dealing with it? Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was unable to conceive. Leah conceived, gave birth to a son and named him Reuben. She said, the Lord has seen my affliction. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, gave birth to a son and said, the Lord heard that I am unloved and has given me this son also. She named him Simeon. She conceived again, gave birth to a son and said, at last, my husband will become attached to me because I've borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was Levi. So she has her first son, Reuben. And again, when you had a boy. When the wife of the house had a boy, it was seen as this is how we're going to live in the future. The more boys we have, what, the, the more uh, the, the, the more our family will grow. Obviously, the girls are going to leave, move off, but the boys stay and the family grows and we'll keep our place in society. So she knows this is a big deal. And she says, I've born him a son. Will he see me now? Will he love me now? Simeon's born. She names him Simeon, which means the Lord hears. She's like, the Lord has heard me. Will my husband hear me? Will he listen to me now? And then Levi, she's like three sons in a row. Will he be attached to me now? Will he love me now? Will he accept me? Will he validate me now? Three boys. The other one hadn't born any children. It said her womb was closed. Will he Love me now. See, she's chasing something similar that Jacob was, just in a little bit different way. She's like, if I just have enough of these kids, if I just give him enough boys, will he be happy with me then? Will he love me then? Will I not be devalued anymore? Man, that's tough, isn't it? And this is, listen, listen. Idolatry in a nutshell. This this story gives us a great example of it. And we're not gonna we're not trying to say anything poor about Leah when we say this, but it just the way that the story fits. We set our hearts on Rachel. I want that. That's what I'm chasing after, that's what I'm pushing after, that's what I'm gonna give myself to, that's what I'm gonna give myself for because I know when I get that, then I'm gonna be alright. And we get it, and the next morning it's Leah. The next morning, it's Lee, it's not what we thought. It's not what we wanted. It's not what we were chasing after somebody switched us out, right? Surely something is wrong. And again, that's no disrespect to her, but it's pointing out the disappointment that he felt that we also feel when we actually lay hold of our idol and realize it's not what we thought we were chasing. It can't do for us what we wanted it to do for us. It can't deliver. And that disappointment is crushing. The disappointment is crushing both to us and to others. Those others that we have put the weight of our longing on. And we're talking about romantic love. That when you put the weight of your longing on someone else, another person, they're going to be crushed by it. even Just because of what the atheist wrote, right? That nobody can keep that spot. Nobody can handle the weight of being put in that position in somebody's life. It's always going to fail. It's always going to fall. And it's always going to bring about disappointment. And so when we get hit with that disappointment, we've got a couple, few options. One, we, we can blame somebody else. It's just your fault. You you, you misrepresented yourself to me. I thought you were going to be like this, and now you're like this. You were supposed to treat me like this. You were supposed to make me feel like this. There must be something wrong with you, right? And we see that. We see that happen. Like, well, she didn't do it. He didn't do it. I need to get me another one. I was wrong about this one, but I've learned now. Now I'm going to chase after that one, right? We, We blame others, or we can... Blame ourselves. Well, there's just something wrong with me. I'm just, I'm just broken. I can't be fixed. Nobody's going to want me. Nobody's going to love me. If I had been better, then they wouldn't have. If I had only, then they would. See? Or we just blame the whole world. All men are trash. I don't want any of them. They're all liars. They're all bad. The whole system's broken. I want to change everything. I want to tear it down and rebuild it. We just blame the whole world. Or, those are all bad options, by the way. You couldn't tell The fourth one is we come to the realization uh, like like what uh, C.S. Lewis outlined when he said, when you find in yourself a desire that nothing in the world can satisfy, nothing in this world can satisfy, then you should take that as evidence that you were made for another world. You should take that as evidence that you were made for something else, that you're trying to drink seawater and be refreshed, be hydrated. And it's not working. He said when you run into that disappointment, understand you've just tried to satisfy that with something from the wrong place. You've tried to take something good and make it great. And listen, no human partner can bear the weight of Godhood. None of them can. Nobody can. Nobody can. We we say it all the time. Somebody can be a great spouse, but they're going to be a terrible God. Don't ask them to be your God. I would never do that. But you're looking to them to give to you what only God can give. And when you do that, you put them in that position and it is bound to fail. I mean, it can't do anything but fail. And so when we're reading this story, again, this is a pretty rough, rough story. There's a lot of stories in scripture. You just got, whoa, like, Lord, where's the hero? You know, I feel like there's supposed to be a hero in this story. There's not a good person in this, but there's not anybody doing well. It's not Jacob. It's not Laban. It's not Rachel. It's not Leah. Who, Who are we supposed to look at in this and go here? Here is the good news. Here's the moral of the story. Here's the hero. And we can see the hero in what what most consider to be Leah's breakthrough moment. Because remember, she started having these boys, and she had the first one, Reuben, and said, "The the Lord has seen me. Maybe my husband will love me now." And he has, she has the second one, Simeon. The Lord has heard me. Maybe my husband will hear me. Now, maybe he'll love me now because Levi, she's still having it, right? But maybe my husband, not three boys, my husband will be attached to me now. Now, maybe he'll receive me as his wife, his beloved. And then she has another son. She has another son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. This time I will praise the Lord. And she names him Judah. This time I will praise the Lord. No mention of her husband. No mention of the boy. Not, not putting anything on anybody else. So it appears she finally took her hopes off of old Jacob and put them on the Lord. Put them onto the Lord. Her life had been stolen from her. In this, Think about all that. That's that's four boys. That's you know, you can add up some months there. This is at least this long of her life, just in this deep sadness and longing and hurt with no, it seems like hope, because every time what she thought was going to help didn't help that disappointment ringing out. But she got it back. She said this time, I'm going to praise the Lord. This time I'm going to look to the one I should have been looking to the whole time. And look in Genesis 49, what we learn is that the Messiah would come through the line of who? Judah. Judah. Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He came through the line of Judah. When Leah finally said, this time I'm going to praise the Lord. This time, I'm just going to turn it over to him. Notice it said, then she stopped having kids. Then she stopped having kids. So the line of the Messiah, the line of Judah was born out of whose name, whose side of the family? Leah. Leah, the one who was unwanted. The one who was unwanted. That's the one who the Messiah came through was Leah. It said, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, He opened her. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, what did He do? He loved her. He loved Leah. And then out of that line came the Messiah. The Messiah came for all those that he saw were what? Unloved. When he looked and saw that we were unloved, that we were unreceived, that we were unvalidated, that we were unwanted like Leah. Those were the ones that he came for. All those who who were depreciated and decimated by the idolatry of romantic love. Those were the ones that he came for because he is. The true bridegroom, the true and better bridegroom. We sang about it this morning, didn't we? He will have his bride free of all her guilt, rid of all her shame and called by her true name. He is the true and better bridegroom. He's the one that can tote the weight. And what he did is he became unwanted for us. It said there was not there was not anything about him that he should be what desired. He was unwanted. He was rejected for our sake. He didn't have to be. He chose to be. Why? So that he could receive us to himself. This is a story that we can look to and say, Lord, don't let me fall into these categories. Don't let me fall into them. Don't let me be like Jacob, just getting swept up in this idolatry of romantic love, thinking if I can just get that one, if I can just get it this way, if I can just do it like this, if I could just do it like the magazine told me, if I could just have that, that then, then I'm going to be right. Then it'll take my pain away. Then it'll validate me because I promise it's only going to get worse. It'll seem like it said he went seven years chasing it and it went by fast to him. Seemed like he was making progress. Seemed like things were going good. And when you chase it for a little while, it's going to seem that away. It's going to seem like you're making progress. It's going to seem like things are getting better. It's going to seem like you almost got that tiger by the tail, but you will not. You wake up the next morning and it's not Rachel, it's Leah. And the disappointment is going to be overwhelming because you've hung your hope on it. Take it back off of that and put it with the one it belongs to. The only one that can stand in that spot, the only one that can tote you, the only one who can validate you, the one who came for you when you were otherwise unloved. He showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, rebels against the crown that he died for us. He is the true and better bridegroom. We don't put it in a person. Maybe you maybe you've been like Leah. Maybe you've been taken advantage of. Maybe you're the one that's been used by somebody else trying to find their God. And maybe you've suffered the collateral damage of that. Listen, just like her. It's turn, turn from that. He loves me. I'm going to praise him. I'm going to look to him. He's going to take away my guilt. He's going to take away my shame. He's going to redeem me. All the things that I wanted that loved one to do that they couldn't do and it got worse. He can do every single bit of it. Amen. Amen. And we ask ourselves as we we close, because I'm I'm about done. Where is it that I'm seeking comfort for my soul? Because we all need it. We all need that comfort. Our soul cries out for comfort. When? All the time. Because we're dealing with lots of things. We got, uh, life is always too heavy for us. It's always too big for us. Or we had a great day and we feel like, yeah, somebody needs to celebrate me. There's always our soul is crying out for comfort. Where is it that we're seeking it from? Where is it that we're seeking it from? And don't buy into this lie that, well, if I can just find that one then. If I can just find that one, if you find that one, that's the one you're going to have weird arguments with for the rest of your life. That's who they are. That's who they are. Because you know what? They're looking for that same thing. And bless their heart, they're getting you. They're looking for redemption. They're looking for everything to be made right. They're looking for all their faults to be done away with. They're looking for perfection. And they're getting you. (laughs) Don't put anybody in that spot. Don't take something that's good. God put that in our life. So that it can be a good thing and a help to us and a blessing, but not so it could be God for us. Not so that it could be ultimate. Do not believe what culture would pitch that it is the ultimate. It is not. And when you get to the end of it, all you're going to be is cut up, wound up, tore up and sad. He is the one your heart desires. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you. That when we were laid out in the field and we had nothing but a rock for our pillow, you met us there like you met Jacob in the field. God, you made a promise to him and he took it for granted. You made a promise to him and he went and chased after something else. Let it not be so with us. God, help us to see with clearer eyes. Clearer eyes, the pitfalls that wait up for us in this life if we handle it the wrong way and to seek you first to look to you, to look to you and not let anybody else crawl their way up into your seat in our heart, to not put our hope on anything less than you. You've given us this anchor for our soul that goes within the veil. God, that's where our hope is. Our hope is in you and everything else can be gravy after that. And Lord, when we felt unloved, when we felt devalued, I mean, when we felt just out, when we have been outright abused like Leah was, that we wouldn't take that and internalize it and put it on ourselves, Lord, but we'll bring it to you. The only one who can cleanse, the only one who can remove guilt, the only one who, who, who can wash us of our stains and our wounds and make us to be right again, that we'll bring it to you. And Lord, as we're learning this, I thank you that you'll point out to us the longings of our soul, that we won't be unaware of what our soul is chasing. And we'll be able to redirect those energies to where they are supposed to be, which is in you. Because it's in you that we live and it's in you that we move and it's in you that we have our being. We are your offspring and we find our hope and our validation and our peace in that. And God, then we can enjoy the relationships that you've given us with an understanding that they're not supposed to perfect us. They're not supposed to make us right. They're not supposed to be our transcendent experience or our great love. We already found him because he found us. And his name is Jesus, the bridegroom who came for those who were unwanted, who saw those who were unloved and entered into their world where they were, into their very moments to save them and redeem them. Thank you, Lord thank you that as we get ready to go today, we leave in peace and unity together with one another. And God, as we start this week, I thank you that you give us everything that we need because you love us so much. And from the, from the position of the beloved, we can live our life from the position of being your child. We can then live our life. And I thank you for the things that you've called us to do. You've called us to serve this week. And I thank you because we found our identity in you. We don't have to be looking for somebody to serve us. We can instead give ourselves away in your name, knowing that you have us. And God, I thank you that you protect us, preserve us, sustain us, uphold us. God, keep us safe. And I thank you that you'll bring us safely back to this gathering again so that we can join together in your name, lifting our eyes and our voices up and saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty O oh, my soul bless the Lord in Jesus name Amen